Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Today's message is from Pastor Kurt. Last week we started a message series called The Tent. It's based on the tabernacle. I tried bringing us all together, uh, regardless if you've come to Christ uh, just in the last couple months or if you've known Jesus your whole life and very well versed in the Bible. We talked about a man named Joseph who was mistreated uh, by his brothers, his family. He was put into slavery, eventually prison, ended up interpreting a dream for Pharaoh in Egypt, and then he was put in charge of Egypt right underneath Pharaoh. There was a famine in Joseph's, actually across the entire land, and Joseph's brothers came into uh, Egypt looking for food. Joseph was the one to distribute it to him. He said, hey, I'm your brother. There was a reunion and restoration. He said, why don't you, my family, come into Egypt during this famine, uh, and I'll take care of you. So uh, Jacob, who was the father of this family, his entire family, they moved to Egypt. Pharaoh was pleased with it, gave them this entire section of land to be cared for during the famine. Well, over the years, Joseph's family grew, his lineage, all of his brothers, it grew and grew and grew. Another Pharaoh came into power. He did not like them. He was afraid that they would become too numerous uh, for the Egyptians and eventually take over. So he enslaved these Israelites. Uh, He beat them, basically tortured them, and created hard labor for them. Uh, Many years later, hundreds of years later, to be uh, a little bit more broad, uh, God sent Moses to be a deliverer of these people. So after Moses spent 40 years uh, in basically in spiritual training, God encounters him, sends him back into Egypt to deliver the people of Israel from slavery. So that is the book of Exodus that we hear about. It's the great Exodus. It's deliverance from slavery. It's a picture of our salvation whenever they are delivered out of slavery into the wilderness. Now, God had a land called the promised land that he wanted his children, his chosen people to go into. And it was supposed to be about a month and a half journey through the desert right into the promised land where then they would just annihilate one after another uh, of their enemies that were in that land and eventually inhabit it. However, they rebelled, they disobeyed, they did not follow the ways of the Lord. So instead of about 40 days in the desert, they spent 40 years in the desert. So early on in this journey, God calls Moses up to this mountain. It's called Mount Sinai. And uh, the, the, there was an actually cloud of glory that settled upon so the people could see this cloud but they couldn't see Moses. Now, when Moses was up there, he received instructions about the covenant. That's the relationship that God wanted to have with the people. That included the Ten Commandments. That also included the construction of this thing called the tabernacle. So if you remember back last week, the tabernacle was a sacred but portable tent that God had them set up, and the the, cloud of glory would settle on it, And then fire would show up at night inside of that cloud. And when the cloud lifted, they had to pack up their tent and all of their belongings. And they traveled until the Lord descended once again and had them stop. The purpose of this tabernacle was for God to dwell among the people. In Exodus 25, 8, it says, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. This was always God's purpose, to dwell among his people. 
Last week, we looked at two items, the walls that were around, the white, the representation of righteousness, and we looked at that entranceway, which is called the gate into the outer courts. And we talked about how the different colors represented different things. They all prophesied to Jesus, but really it wasn't about those colors. It was all about Jesus, who is the true gate. And in John chapter 10, I read this last week, starting in verse 7, it says, Therefore Jesus said again, Truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me, it says, through me will be saved. So Jesus didn't say to come under me, over me, or around me. He's saying, whoever comes through me, the only gate, the way, the truth, and the life, you will be saved. It says, they will come in and go out and find pasture. Now he says, the thief, he only comes to still kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is the abundant life. So this is where Jesus is saying, there's one narrow gate to enter into the kingdom. And that narrow, small gate that few, he says, will enter compared to all the people in the history of mankind, it's through that gate named Jesus But once you enter that single small gate named Jesus, you have the entire kingdom to enjoy. That is what is called the abundant life. So many people say, well, you know, I'm I'm used to partying or I'm used to doing this and this. I don't want to come into this narrow mind. And some people say Christians are narrow-minded and they're, you know, single-minded. I don't want to do this. I'm going to lose all my fun. No, no, no. Listen. You lay down your life at the gate of that tabernacle, at the gate of the presence of the king, and then you truly find the life that you always knew what was possible, but you couldn't find it on your own. That's the abundant life. That's life in the kingdom where there's freedom, where there's joy, where there's true fulfillment. What I want to do is I want to show that minute and a half video that we showed last week just to bring everybody else again up on speed, and then we'll get back to the, uh, the specific topic, the altar that we're going to talk about today. So when we think about 
this entire setup was for God to dwell, for God to be with his people. It takes us all the way back to the garden where I talked about last week, where it said in the cool of the evening, God, the creator of Adam would walk with Adam. So from the beginning of before time was even existent, God wanted and desired to be with his people. It was our sin, our rebellion, our disbelief that actually tore us away from him. I think we've gotten it wrong sometimes because when we read through the Old Testament, we think God's an angry God and God's punishing here, there, there. If you look at the intention from the garden to the tabernacle, into the promised land, to Jesus, all the way to Revelation, his desire is to be with us. He created us for relationship. So our sin took us away, separated us from the Father. So as now the people are in the wilderness, God says, I'm forming a new covenant. It's between God and Moses. Moses represents the Israelites, so it's called the Mosaic Covenant. If, you've ever, if you ever hear that term, the Mosaic Covenant is between God and Moses, and then Moses represents the people of Israel. This entire covenant is about how God can come and dwell with them within this tabernacle. However, something had to happen now. There had to be something that pays for our sin, some type of punishment, judgment. Something had to occur so that we could come back into the presence of God. And Seth uh, quoted it earlier, um, I almost said earlier, yes, earlier today. In Hebrews 9.22, the second half of that verse, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So there has to be shed blood. There has to be a sacrifice for there to be forgiveness of sin. Fortunately for us, God did not make us shed our own blood. Because back in the garden, where he says, surely today, that day you will die if you eat of that fruit. He showed mercy on Adam and Eve. He did not kill them physically, but they faced a spiritual death. Though now their bodies would begin to wear out until one day they would face a physical death. But here, now, in this tabernacle, there had to be the shedding of blood. And with that shedding of blood, with that sacrifice, there would be forgiveness of sin. And that's where the tabernacle comes into play, specifically the one part I want to talk about today, which is the altar of burnt offering. Sometimes you might see it called the brazen altar because it was covered with bronze. Don't get confused. Don't get lost in these details. Again, sometimes we fly through these things because we don't understand them. I want you to start to see how the details of these ancient items of worship can be pulled into modern day worship. They pull, they prophesy, they foretell Jesus. Every aspect, every detail looks at God's relationship with us through the person of Jesus, the King Jesus who we serve. So in Exodus 27, it starts talking about this altar. It says, build an altar of acacia wood three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long, and five cubits wide. Remember, a cubit is about from our end of our elbow to the tip of our finger. It's about 18 inches. So this altar was seven and a half feet square, long and wide. It was about four and a half feet high. It's a pretty big altar space. It says, make a horn on each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all of its utensils of bronze. 
It's pots to remove the ashes. It's shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at the end, uh, at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. In verse 6 through 8 and on, starts talking about making the poles. And there's other elements that would slide into this altar so it can be carried by the priests whenever it was time to leave. So this altar of burnt offering, it was made of wood, it was covered with bronze, and it was at seven and a half feet square. It was a large space so that large animals can be taken up there. And it was high enough so that enough wood can be put on this space to allow for the fire to continue to burn throughout the day. Now it was covered with bronze. Last week we talked about a lot of, I think six or seven different colors, but bronze was one color we talked about that represented humanity and God's judgment of sin. You'll notice as we work our way inside the actual tent of the tabernacle that the pieces on the outside, like the pole bases we talked about, the, the, the stakes in the ground, and now this brazen altar is all bronze. Once you get inside the tent, everything is pure gold. It's such a great image and picture of how we come in our humanity knowing that something has to judge our sin to come into the presence. And when we open up that tent, that second entrance into the holy place, it's all covered with gold representing the purity and the holiness of God and especially Jesus. You know, even when we come in to the presence of God, we do have to come, not with a, uh, not with a, um, a belief that, you know, we're dirty, rotten sinners, because Scripture says otherwise. Scripture says that you're a saint and that you're holy once you know the Lord. But we do have to come to him with an awareness of our humanity. It's called being poor in spirit. It's coming to him and saying, God, I need you once again today. Father, I need your touch upon my life. I ask you to fill me once again. I cannot do this on my own. And that's the attitude that these worshipers would have had. I mean, picture them with their sacrifices, uh, rounding the corner of these white curtains and then coming into the entrance, knowing that they are about to place one of their animals onto this altar for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, it was temporary. It didn't last forever. That's why they had to continue to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And fortunately, we know in the new covenant, it's completely different with Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. Stick with me. Stick with me. So on this bronze altar are horns. Now, when I see horns, and then you see like horned beasts in Revelation, sometimes you could just kind of like mentally check out because you don't know what it means. But if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, what you're doing is you're looking at where is this mentioned and what does it mean in other areas? A horn always means strength in the Bible. In fact, it can also mean honor, glory, and dominion, but it always has that connotation of strength. So when they would take their animal, their sacrifice, and place it onto this altar, they would understand that the strength of the Lord was surrounding their sacrifice that was about to pay for the forgiveness of their sins. In fact, in Psalm 18, still in the Old Covenant, which is prophesying to the New Covenant, foretelling Jesus. It says this, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. 
My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. These verses are talking about Jesus and this word horn literally means strength. So you could replace that word and, and basically say, the Lord is the strength of my salvation. That word horn, that means strength, is the same exact Hebrew word in Exodus when it's talking about putting the four horns there. So now we're thinking that the Lord, the Old Testament, Jehovah, is our strength, but Jesus is the strength of our salvation. There's one on each corner too. There was that, a Jewish belief that the earth was nothing more than a large altar built for the Lord. So now this is just an image here. I'm putting my sacrifice on this small altar that represents what we want him to do for everybody in all mankind from the four corners of this earth. How many of you know what that looks forward to, right? When Jesus even says, anyone, anyone, no one's left out, but anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So not only is he the strength of our salvation, we also know that his salvation covers from the four corners of the earth. Amen? I feel like, like, like this is what the world needs right now. The world is broken, mad at each other, divided, doesn't know. You know, when you read something, you don't know what the truth is and what a conspiracy theory is. The Lord wants to raise the church up to be strong once again in the community, to have the answers, to have the solutions that people are looking for. So we can't just like muddle through life as like barely making it by. If we truly believe these words, that he is the strength of our salvation, that God is stronger than what any demon, what any devil could ever try to do in our lives, then we should live like it. Right? To actually walk in the strength that he has for us. Now, there is joy and there's fulfillment. There's laughter. There's all those things. But there's a strength and a confidence that he wants us to walk in. So when people are lost and they are hurting, hurting they have somewhere to look. They can keep looking at their Zodiac signs. They can keep looking at their self-help magazines. But I believe the Lord wants to... to allow the church to be strong in this season. Uh, that person looks like they have confidence. They look like they know what they're doing in life. I want to go talk to them. And then what do we do? Do we reveal our five-step plan to success? No, we reveal Jesus. And that's what the tabernacle did. It's peeling back piece by piece, revealing Jesus to us in this side of the covenant. Every item... Before, while, while the tabernacle was being consecrated, every item was smeared with, with blood on it. Every single item. And when the sacrifice is made, we'll read too, that there was blood that was uh, splattered on the sides here. It might seem like gross or gruesome to you, but all this did is this. It all pointed. It's not about the piece of furniture. It's about Jesus. It's about the blood. It's about the blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So you don't have to look at it anymore and say, why are they doing all this? It's to center the priests and the people, the worshipers, back on the, the blood, which we now know would be the blood of Jesus. 
So this animal, the sacrifice that, they, that the Lord instructed them to bring into the gate, which represents what? Jesus, our faith in him. They would bring it to this altar. Now this animal was to be a male animal without defect, meaning that it had no blemish, no scar, no bruise. It was basically perfect in man's eyes. And really what that meant is this, this animal did not deserve what it was about to receive, but we deserved it as the sinner. And this is a picture of Jesus coming. It says he had no sin, right? Jesus had no sin, no blemish, no scar, no nothing. And yet he took the punishment that we deserved. Back in Leviticus 1.1, it says, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, anyone who brings, anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from that herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You enter, you must enter it, present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. So we come through that representation of Jesus and we bring this perfect sacrifice foreshadowing the perfect Savior that would die for us. In verse four, look at this. It says, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be acceptable, listen, on your behalf to make atonement. What's that word atonement? Payment for you. So I want to read that verse again. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and that animal, which is the burnt offering, will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you for your sin. So what would happen? They would bring the animal. They would enter through the gate. They would put the animal down before they got to the altar. And they would put their hand, the hand of a sinner, being placed on a spotless animal without blemish, without stain, without wrinkled. And in that moment, there was a spiritual transference of from their sin, from them to that animal. So what's happening now? The faith is this. The belief is this, because God said so. When I lay my hand on this animal, the sins I have committed since the last time I brought this offering are going to be placed on this animal. And now we have an undeserving recipient receiving the punishment that the worshiper would have deserved. So now that the animal is sacrificed, the blood is shed, they're put on to the altar those, my sins that were transferred to that animal is what's receiving the judgment of God on the bronze altar. It's my humanity being judged by God on the altar of the burnt offering. And yet I get to leave forgiven. Now in the Old Testament, time after time after time, they had to keep bringing this burnt offering. Time after time. What happens with Jesus in the new covenant? In 1 Peter 2.22, he, Jesus, committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Indeed, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Look at verse 24. He himself, this is Jesus, your Lord and Savior, bore our sins, meaning he carried our sins. Where? in his body, to where? On the cross. Why? 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So when you think about even when Paul talks about in Romans 6, 7, and 8, about how we died to our old sinful nature, how we died to all the sin, this is how it happened, guys. There was a transference that we didn't lay our our hand on Jesus' head. What we did is we put our heart, our belief, our faith in Christ. And he's saying, because I love you, because my Father loves you, because he wants to be with you, he received your sin, my sin, the sin from before, the sin of people that would come after him. He received it in his body. He wasn't like wearing it like a book bag. It says that he bore our sin in his body, took it to the cross, and when he died, it allowed us to die to our old, rotten, wicked, selfish, sinful nature so that we could come alive to righteousness. So you think, well, how did Jesus really die for my sin? Right there. He took your sin in his body before you were ever born. Even when we come to him and we say, like, I wonder if he'll forgive this sin. Oh, this was a bad one. Oh, I messed up big time when I was a teenager. Whatever's going through your brain. Thousands of years before you were ever born, he already wore your sin. It's not like he went back up on the cross when you asked for forgiveness. Right? Like when you came to Jesus and was like, I really realize you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. Will you become my savior, save me from my sins. And he's like, okay, yeah, sure. Let me take all your sins upon me. Let me go back up on the cross. So he already did it. Think about in the garden now, when it says that he was sweating blood, the agony and the anguish that he went through and the weight, not like of just my sin or everybody in this room. Think about the sin of all humanity coming upon him and then taking that to the cross and the beautiful gift that we get to find righteousness in Christ. I think about how good those worshipers would have felt like hand on the head of that animal, animals on the altar, I'm free. And they leave that gate and then 20 minutes later they sin. They're like, I'm not free. And they start looking for the next animal. They wait for the spotless lamb to become at least a year old and they bring it back and bring it back and bring it back. We don't have to do any of that. Come on. Like we should start living like we're actually forgiven. How about that? Instead of just struggling to get by, living in my past sin, having guilt and condemnation, actually believing that he went on the altar of the cross one time, and that was enough. That was enough. This fire that was on the altar of the burnt offering was to continuously burn and burn and burn. I mentioned it about a month ago when we talked about the fire of God, how when they consecrated the tabernacle, fire actually came from heaven and lit that altar for the first time. So God's like, listen, I will purify this thing. I will set this thing on fire, but the priests must keep it burning. It's a picture of how he will refine us. He will renew us, but we are walking with him. He's not dragging us along. So to keep that fire burning, we live a holy life unto the Lord, consecrated, set apart. And that's the picture you could think of any time that you're looking at this fire in the tabernacle. Think about the court too. Think about the hundreds of people that would walk and they would see that fire coming out 
and they would smell. In Scripture, they would actually smell the meat burning. It's like an all-day barbecue. <laughs> sure, he says, stop it. <laughs> it's second service. It's all right. We're letting it loose. But think about this. Think about anybody that was in that court that didn't even have to bring the, the sacrifice. Think of, they would smell the smoke, and they would smell that offering, not just inside the court, but all around. And it would be a beautiful reminder, somebody's sins are being forgiven right now. Wow, God loves somebody else's sins. Somebody else's sins. Somebody else's sins. Think about the lines and the, the animals that would be sacrificed. Somebody else's sins. Listen, it should not be a reminder of just how wicked we are. It should be a reminder of how good he is. And how much he wants to be, how much he wants us to be in his presence. I love this picture too. There's other offerings that the worshiper would bring that they would put some on the fire to stay on there until it was totally consumed. Like they would bring it, they would slaughter the animal, they would put it on, onto the altar. But many of the other offerings, some of the meat would be cooked and then the worshiper would eat some of it and the priest would eat some of it. So they would actually benefit from that offering. In the burnt offering, none of it was to be benefited by of the priest or the worshiper. The entire thing was to be set there and completely consumed by the fire of God. Why? Because he does not want us taking our sin back off of the altar and consuming it, right? What would have happened? They would have reached in and they would have burnt their hand. What happens? Every time we reach back into an old way of life, an old sinful habit, we get burnt every single time. So he wants that, that cons full consumption of our sin by the glory of God, by the fire of God. In fact, even when it says in Hebrews 8.3, it says this, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one, Christ, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. In verse eight, it says this, but God found fault with the people. And he said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Like even at these, like if you even picture this, it's like he made a covenant because he wanted to be with us and we messed it up over and over and over again. Like if I was God, I'd be like, I'm done with you people. I'm out. I'm hanging out in heaven. I'm good. But what did he do? Instead of increasing his wrath, he increased his grace. And he says, you know what? This time, the covenant won't be between myself and man. The covenant will be between myself and my son who will represent man when he comes to earth. And this way, my covenant can never be broken again. 
And in verse 10, it says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. Listen to what he's going to do. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. All the way up to this time, from Mount Sinai until this moment in time when Jesus came, where was the law of God written? On stone tablets. Where were those stone tablets? External, outside of somebody. They were hidden in the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle. So we have these external rules that you have to follow or punishment's coming. And God's saying, listen, this obviously isn't working. So now what I'm going to do is write my law on your heart and in your mind. And in fact, I'm going to place my very own spirit within you to be your counselor and your guide every step of the way. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Verse 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This one sentence represents why that entire burnt offering was taken to the brazen altar and fully consumed by the fire. Why? There was nothing else to remember. That worshiper was not supposed to leave the altar or the, the outer courts and say, I'll remember that. I'll remember that. I'll feel guilty about that. I'll feel condemned about that. No, the animal was fully consumed. And God's saying through the blood of Jesus, I will remember your sin no more. So what do we let? We let the enemy come and lie to us and say, that sin is still affecting you. That thing that you did in the past, that way that you used to live, you'll never get to where you want to be. And God's like, hold on, hold on. I'm choosing to not even remember that. We play these mind games where we let the devil play mind games with us, just sifting through our memories of failing God. And he's like, I, I choose not to remember that. Like Jesus's blood was enough. So that's behind us. Let's move on. So you sin, you mess up, then you go to the Lord. You confess your sins to him, right? Why? Because you know how much he loves you. And you know how much sin will destroy you. And you repent of it. How about this? How about a body of believers, a generation of Christians who take full responsibility for their own sin and say, I'm responsible. I did this. Jesus, I'm thankful that you already took it on the cross. So I take it off of me and I just lay it at the foot of the cross. I'm so thankful that I've already been forgiven of that. I'm recognizing I don't want that thing in my life. That's called repentance. I think so many times we make excuses. We'll just blame it on the Republicans or the Democrats at this point, right? Live how you want to, blame it on someone else. Now, how about take full responsibility so you recognize that that sin was already nailed to the cross? And then you just walk in communion with Jesus. Adam, you could come on up. I want to read just a, a few more verses from Hebrews 9 and 10 that kind of wrap this up. Seth already mentioned this uh, verse to you in Hebrews 9. We'll go, I'm going to go to verse 12. It says, he, this is Jesus, did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. He says in verse 15, this, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. I want you to understand, Jesus 
didn't have to walk into that tent of the tabernacle. He went upon the cross and it did everything necessary once and for all. I can picture some of those religious officials of the day probably being like super mad when, first of all, when the veil tears and then they realize there are people following this person named Jesus, right? Because Jesus, after he resurrected, he was on this earth for 40 more days. But now they're following him and they're not bringing, they're not bringing sacrifices to this altar anymore. You see how that would have messed with their religious minds? Hey folks, we have to do something for God. We have to do something for God. God's saying those days are over. So people that started following Jesus, they stopped bringing their animal sacrifices to the altar of burnt offering. Why? Because the perfect sacrifice was already on the cross. Their sins were completely, once and for all, paid for, never again having to come to that burnt offering. In Hebrews 10, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but it just talks about how all of this stuff was a shadow of the thing to come, which was Jesus. And in verse 10, it says this, and by that will, meaning by the will of the Father, it says, we have been made holy, holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Why don't you stand at this time? I feel like the enemy wants us to be in this rat race of feeling like we're still in the ancient tabernacle where we feel like we have to bring uh, these animals, these, these substitutions for our sin and we have to walk in with guilt and walk out with a little bit of freedom but have guilt again five minutes later. We think that we have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. But the new covenant in Romans 12 says that we, us, the person, are a living sacrifice. So God doesn't want a sacrifice of a bull or a goat sheep or a lamb. He wants us to lay ourselves on the altar of the cross and say, take all of us, Lord. Take all of us. And through his mercy and through his grace, he actually spares our life. It's in scripture enough that when somebody would come into the presence of God, they would feel like they're going to die from the weightiness of who he is. And he spares our life. Not only does he spare our life, he spares judgment and wrath coming upon us because it already came on Jesus on the cross. So there's mercy there, there's grace there, there's acceptance there, but you have to put your life on the altar at the cross. You have to choose to say, I'm laying down my life. I'm coming through that gate. I'm putting myself on the brazen altar knowing that Jesus paid for my sins. And all you're doing is you're laying down the sinfulness, the selfishness, the wickedness that isn't worth hanging on to anyway. Right? And scripture says we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. Why? So we can be resurrected with Christ. So you can have that eternal life now on this side of eternity. And when our body fails us and we come into the presence of Jesus on the other side of eternity. I just want you to bow your heads just for a moment. If you're at home, maybe just close yourself off with the Lord. And I just want to ask if there's anyone in this room that is not confident that you've ever laid your life down so that Jesus could become your Lord and Savior. 
You're not the one being consumed. Jesus was already consumed on that cross for you. You're saying, I want my sins and my sinful nature consumed. If you're in this room and you're not sure if you've ever made that decision and you want Jesus to become your Lord and your Savior today, I want you to raise your hand with confidence and just look up at me and I want to spend a moment praying for you. If there's anyone in this room that wants to make that decision for the first time today. Thank you, Lord. If you're confident that you have received him, that's awesome. That's, that's the joy and the strength that you should have. If you're online and that's a decision you want to make, there's a place right on the hub that says, I'm interested in following Jesus. I want you to fill that out and we'll get in touch with you here tomorrow to help you take your next steps with Jesus. What I want to do is just pray for you. You can just keep your head bowed. I just want to pray that this lie, that the enemy tries to tell us that our sins aren't forgiven, that we still have to live in the sufferings of our past, where you have to walk with guilt and shame, that, that that's all garbage. It's all a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible says that we can have a clean conscience before God because of the blood of Jesus. So we want to walk out of here, and when we come back next week, still have a clean conscience, knowing that we have the opportunity to lay down at the altar every day, lay our lives down, lay our lives down. So Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now in the holiness of this moment. And we ask God that you would bring full revelation to our hearts of what it means to be fully and wholly forgiven. Father, even as we picture you up on the cross, we can't imagine that you would have died for 99% of our sins. And we get to keep 1%. Father, we believe that Jesus bore, carried on himself 100% of our sins. And as we confess and repent and walk with you, we can walk in the confidence and the strength of knowing we have a clean conscience before you. Father, we're asking for that full revelation, the full revelation today, the realization that we are clean, whiter than snow. As we sang earlier, we could stand fully righteous in your sight. God, I pray that this revelation would give us more joy and more confidence, even a greater willingness to be vulnerable and transparent in front of people knowing that we have been forgiven at that altar of the cross, Lord. I thank you for it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media.